Hey, creepy people. This is P&W Haunts and Homicides. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Cassie. Together, we explore stories of the paranormal and true crime throughout the Pacific Northwest. For each episode, we do a tarot reading to help us gain some insight on the topic as we share the facts of the case and our interpretations. You can find our episodes featuring true stories from infamous cases such as the misdeeds of Boeing, as well as lesser-known true crime cases like the murders in Tunnel 13. As well as our spooky stories from Pike Place and Raven's Manor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you'd like to listen. Have Have a a creepy-ass day! Aloha, Ghostlorians. Nice to see you again. I am your host, Jared. Or as my friends call me, Jared. So I'm so happy to announce that July 9th is the one-year anniversary for the Ghost Lore of Hawaii podcast. I had no clue what to expect after releasing the trailer one year ago. I hoped several people would get a kick of these often underreported stories and thought that would be that. But I could never have imagined what it would evolve into. The podcast has become more than just a hobby for me. It's gotten me through some tough times, still does, and I've made so many amazing friends along the way. So thank you to all who have supported the show by tuning in every episode, sharing, downloading, and all the other important factors that help a show like mine grow. Without you, Ghost Lore of Hawaii would have probably died, pun intended, long ago. Oh yeah, one last thank you for all the kind feedback from the previous two-part story. I'm learning to doggy paddle outside of my comfort zone. Animal references. So your encouragement is like shoving me into shark-infested waters in the best way. So enough chit-chat. After many requests, tonight's episode bunny hops back into the true crime genre as I cover a few of Hawaii's chilling unsolved mysteries so burrow your okole but in the sand like a crab until you make the perfect seat pop open a green bottle get comfy with the fire and let's get into this Like anywhere else around the world, Hawaii has its own share of unsolved mysteries that have circulated the islands for decades. In tonight's episode, I'll be discussing a variety of these strange tales, starting with one of Hawaii's first confirmed serial killers. Next, I'll cover the disappearance of a small fishing vessel the Sarah Joe and her five experienced crew still missing to this day. 
Lastly, I'll touch on the gruesome discovery one woman made inside of a dumpster that will haunt her forever. Vicky spritzed her hair with hairspray before doing a final checkover in front of the mirror. Eh. She was already running late to meet up with the girls for a night of clubbing in Waikiki. She gave her husband Gary a quick kiss on the cheek before running out to the taxi that had been waiting out front. Vicky's plan was to catch the cab to the Shorebird Hotel to pick up her car that she had parked in the lot before meeting her friends at the clubs. That cab driver would be the last person to see 25-year-old Vicky Gale Purdy alive. On the morning of May 30th, 1985, her body was found strangled with her hands bound behind her back near Keehi Lagoon, minutes from downtown Honolulu. Vicky Purdy would become the first victim of the Honolulu Strangler, Hawaii's second confirmed serial killer and the only one whose identity was never discovered. Sort of. Over the course of two years, four other women would be murdered on Oahu by the Honolulu Strangler each victim being found with their hands bound behind their backs. With the exception of one woman, all other deceased victims were discovered minutes from Keehi Lagoon, the site where the first body was located. The final victim of the Honolulu Strangler Linda Pesky failed to return home one evening after attending a meeting for work. She was reported missing on April 29, 1986, after her roommate discovered she had not shown up for work and learned her car had been abandoned on the side of the freeway. The Honolulu Police Department created a 27-person serial killer task force with the help from the FBI and the Green River Task Force, the group responsible for the investigation of Washington State's own Green River killer, Gary Ridgway. 
They concluded the Honolulu Strangler's profile was one of a male in his late 30s or early 40s who was an opportunistic killer attacking vulnerable women after crossing paths with them at bus stops or on the side of the road. Additionally, opportunistic killers usually do not stalk victims and the killer likely lived or worked in the vicinity of the attacks and probably experienced marital or girlfriend problems at the time of the murders. Police questioned commuters who frequently passed through the area of the attacks and gathered information from witnesses seeing a light-colored van with a Caucasian or mixed-race man parked on the side of the freeway next to Linda Pesky's car. On May 3rd, four days after Linda Pesky was reported missing by her roommate, a man named Howard Gay called police to inform them that a psychic told him a body could be found at Sand Island, a small island in Honolulu Harbor, minutes from Ke'ehi Lagoon. Gay took police to a very specific location on Sand Island. Only investigators found nothing. Police noticed Gay had been avoiding a specific area of Sand Island, so began to focus their search in that spot. They soon discovered Pesky's body nude with her hands tied behind her back. On May 9th, shortly after the Honolulu Police Department discovered Pesky's body, they arrested Howard Gay as the primary suspect. Gay fit the profile made by the task force to the T. He was a white male in his early 40s, check, drove a cream-colored van, uh, check, and worked as an air freight mechanic along Lagoon Drive. Oh snap. A road adjacent to you guessed it, Ke'ehi Lagoon. That's the guy. Police interviewed his ex-wife and girlfriend, who both described Gay as a smooth talker who had a very incriminating fetish. Howard Gay was into bondage activity, the act of physically restraining a partner with items like ropes, chains, or handcuffs, not kink-shaming. Both women confirmed Gay liked to tie them up and have sex with their hands bound behind their back. Freaky. Linda Pesky's boss informed HPD that he found Gay's number on her desk, written in her handwriting on the day of her disappearance. The boss claimed Pesky was looking for new customers in the area and had likely set up a business meeting with Gay. While being questioned by the police, 
Gay offered to take a polygraph test, idiot, which he failed. Then, one of the most incriminating bits of information to me was that Gay's girlfriend told police they had been recently fighting a lot more than usual. On the nights of the fights, Gay would leave the house and would not return for several hours. The dates of these fights were the same nights each of the murders had occurred. However, all the evidence police gathered against Howard Gay was circumstantial and was still not enough to charge him for the crime and he was released after the 10-hour interrogation. What? Two months after the arrest, a woman came forward with information that she saw Linda Pesky with a man on the night of her murder. She picked Gay out of a photo lineup as the man she saw, but out of fear, chose not to testify believing the man saw her that night as well. The murders stopped immediately after Gay's arrest, and in the end, he would never be charged for the deaths of the five women. Howard Gay would die of kidney failure in 2003. Even though he was never brought to trial for the murders, the lieutenant in charge of the task force, along with several detectives who worked on the case, were all convinced Howard Gay was the Honolulu Strangler, Hawaii's second confirmed serial killer. Messed up, huh? I mentioned that the Honolulu Strangler was the only serial killer not to be identified. I say this because, although so much of the evidence pointed to Howard Gay, he was never convicted or charged for the murders, so we can't say for sure if he was the Honolulu Strangler. But he was the Honolulu Strangler. The next story is a pretty well-known incident that took place back in 1979. What happened to a group of fishermen who departed out to sea from Hana on the island of Maui still remains as one of Hawaii's greatest mysteries. On the morning of February 11th, 1979, five men, Peter Hanchett, Benny Kalama, Ralph Malayakini, Scott Mormon, and Patrick Wasner, took off work for a fishing trip on a 17-foot Boston whaler named the Sarah Joe. Combined, 
the friends had over 50 years of fishing and seafaring experience, with Ralph even being a career fisherman. The group left Hana Harbor at around 10 a.m. under beautiful, sunny, clear skies. The water was calm, perfect for a day out on the ocean. However, at around 1 p.m., the weather began to drastically change. The calm breeze blowing in from the ocean suddenly shifted to a strong wind coming in from the mountains. The changing of the winds was usually the first indication that a storm was headed in the direction of the small town. John Hanchett Sr., the father of Peter Hanchett and several other concerned family members and friends of the group, headed to the shore in an attempt to spot the men to wave them back in. They scanned the ocean for several hours but could not spot the Sarah Joe. The wind only intensified, and within the next few hours, the huge storm blasted the area with rain and waves that battered the coast. Terrified for his son, John Hanchett even took his own boat out during the massive storm in search of the Sarah Joe. Yet, after a few hours, had to turn back with no sign of the men. John, once again, left the next morning in search of the boat, along with a marine biologist named John Naughton. Again, with no luck. Remember John Naughton's name, because he'll come up again in the story. The Coast Guard joined the search on the third day, providing additional ship and helicopter support, even expanding the search in the days that followed. The toughest aspect the rescuers faced was that the Sarah Joe was painted blue, making it difficult to distinguish from the water that would have surrounded it. Unfortunately, after a five-day search that covered more than 73,000 miles, rescuers could not find the five fishermen, or any trace of their boat. This would not stop the Hana community from completing their own searches of the area. Residents who owned boats continued to go out in hopes of finding an answer. 
those who did not own a sea craft searched the shores for any sign of the Sarajo or its wreckage. Sadly, the searches ended in heartbreak and unanswered questions. Nearly ten years after the Sarajo and its five crew members disappeared, an unexpected discovery was made that thrusted the story back into the spotlight, yet only added more questions to the mystery. On September 9th, 1988, just five months before the 10-year anniversary of the disappearance of the Sarah Joe, a biologist on a wildlife expedition was surveying an atoll on the Marshall Islands, some 2,000 miles west of Maui. The researcher sat on a small boat as it cruised off the shore of the deserted atoll named Taongi. As he scanned the shore with his binoculars for any signs of native wildlife, the marine biologist spotted a small boat that had washed onto the beach. He and his crew headed towards the atoll to take a closer look at the boat's wreckage. Some of the craft's registration numbers were still visible on the side of the boat that indicated it originated from Hawaii. The crew began searching the beach for any other clues about the boat and quickly discovered about 60 yards away what is that? was a shallow grave of piled coral and rocks marked with a makeshift wooden cross. Protruding out of the ground was a human jawbone. There were no signs that the island was inhabited, yet the group were still not certain if the grave and the wreckage were connected, so left the bones as they found it. U.S. Coast Guards ran a check on the boat's registration numbers and shockingly discovered the craft found on that beach was the Sarah Joe. One of the craziest bits of information was who discovered the wreckage. That marine biologist who spotted the boat was no other than John Naughton the same marine biologist who went out to search for the Sarah Joe the first day of the disappearance. Once the boat's wreckage was confirmed to be that of the Sarah Joe, the remains in the shallow grave were excavated. The partial remains of the human skull, along with several other bones, were found and tested 
results came back, revealing the bones belong to Scott Mormon, one of the missing fishermen. Another peculiar discovery found within the grave was an unbound stack of notebook paper about three inches by three inches and three-fourths of an inch thick. Found between the pages were alternating slips of square pieces of tinfoil. The discovery puzzled the Coast Guard, who could not determine what the purpose of the foil and papers served, and who buried it and Scott Mormon. As time passed, however, some speculate the cryptic papers were part of an Asian burial ritual where gold and silver foil represented ghost money for the dead to bring with them into the next life. This clue may point towards some clarification on who buried Mormon. Experts claim it was definitely possible for the Sarah Joe to drift the 2,200 miles from Hawaii to the Marshall Islands. The trip would have taken roughly three months, which is a long time for someone to survive out at sea with extremely limited rations. Oh, really? But there are stories of people who survived longer. Jose Salvador Alvarenga, a Salvadorian fisherman, claimed to have survived 438 days at sea before being rescued, coincidentally, in the Marshall Islands back in 2014. The clue that throws a wrench into the idea that the Sarah Joe made it to the Marshall Islands in three months comes from one of the brothers of the missing men. He claims in 1985, three years before the wreckage would be found, a U.S. government survey of the atoll and beach was taken and found no trace of the wreckage or gravesite. So where was the Sarah Joe? all those years and what happened to the other four men who was aboard unfortunately we may never know the closest answers family members and friends got came from private investigator Steve Goodenow who was hired to look into the case Goodenow and his team went to Taungi Atoll for an extensive search, just in case anything was overlooked. They were able to recover more of Scott Mormon's bones near the gravesite, as well as the Sarah Joe's engine, which was wedged underwater in the coral reef. The lagoon where the wreckage was found made it almost impossible for the boat to have made it to the beach without human interaction, meaning 
someone had to have guided the craft through the narrow channel between the reef for it to reach the shore. If left to drift undisturbed, the boat would have most likely been damaged by the shallow reef and sunk before making it to land. Goodenow theorized that Chinese fishermen found the Sarah Joe adrift with Scott Mormon's body. They brought the remains to the atoll and buried Mormon in as close to a Christian method as they knew, including the makeshift wooden cross. They included the ritual of leaving the ghost money with the body, as was the custom of their own culture. Goodenow suspected the fishermen would not have reported the body to authorities, as they would have been fishing illegally in the area. Family members of the missing crew think Scott Mormon tied himself to the boat during the initial storm, with the other men likely falling overboard, which explains why his body was the only one found on the vessel. They also suspect he did not survive the 2,200-mile journey to Taongi. Two memorial plaques were installed to commemorate the crew of the Sarah Joe, one in Hana Harbor and the other on Taongi Atoll. A recent documentary celebrating the men, which includes interviews from family and friends, was released a few years back called The Sarah Joe, Hana Remembers Her Sons. The case of the Sarah Joe is one of the most popular unsolved stories to come out of Hawaii. Shows like Unsolved Mysteries and countless blogs and podcasts have been made over the years, yet we likely will never know what really happened on that journey from Maui to the Marshall Islands. This last story, although brief, discusses a topic that may be disturbing to some listeners. There has been no update in the 10 years since the incident occurred, which adds to the unsettling nature of the gruesome discovery. Listener discretion is advised. On an unassuming morning, back in 2012, Andrea was picking through a couple of trash bins near her apartment complex in search of recyclables to turn into the recycle center for some extra cash. On this overcast day, she wasn't having much luck, only finding a few plastic bottles and a can or two. 
As Andrea lifted a trash bag out of one of the bins, it tore, spilling the contents on the sidewalk. Ugh, gross. She was in the middle of scooping up the mess with an old pizza box when something odd caught her eye. Andrea saw a small Ziploc bag containing what she thought were several pieces of wilted ginger root. Ginger. Being a gardener, she figured reviving the dried roots with some water would be a simple fix. So threw the Ziploc in her purse and continued cleaning up the mess. Andrea went on to search for more bottles and cans for several more hours until deciding she deserved a break. She popped into a coffee shop to order a drink and a snack and sat down at a table to wait for her food. Wanting to clean up a bit, she remembered she usually kept a few wet wipes in her purse, so began searching for them. Oh, I forgot about this, she said to herself, pulling the Ziploc out and tossing it on the table. Finding the wet wipes, she opened one up and vigorously cleaned her fingers and palms. Satisfied, Andrea took a sip of her drink while picking up the Ziploc to closer inspect its contents. She suddenly spit out the liquid in her mouth while simultaneously throwing the Ziploc bag away from her in disgust. What the f***? Realizing what she had been carrying around the last few hours. I was drinking soda and... Sorry. I knew for a fact those were fingers when I seen the fingernails. She said in an interview with KHON Channel 2. Andrea showed the contents of the bag to other people sitting around her who all disagreed, saying it couldn't be fingers. They tried telling me that it wasn't, that it might be monkey fingers. And that's not weird? Andrea decided, just to be safe, to call the police to let them decide. Investigators completed forensic testing on the contents of the Ziploc, which came back confirming they were indeed human fingers. Even worse yet, the results concluded they were the fingers of a child. They estimate the child was between the ages of two and five years old, but could not figure out the gender or ethnicity. HPD cross-referenced the information with the missing persons database, yet nothing could be determined. They requested help from the public, hoping anyone would come forward with information that would help identify who the fingers belonged to or how they ended up in the trash. 
However, no other information was submitted and the case remains unsolved. That wraps up this episode of Ghost Lore of Hawaii, Paranormal Paradise. It was a little more true crime than paranormal, but I hope you are still entertained. With the exception of the Sarah Joe, many of these stories are not as well known to the world. There's plenty more of these types of true crime and unsolved mystery tales to cover. So let me know if you enjoyed this theme. If you have a story or case you'd like to hear on the podcast, you can email me at ghostlore.of.hawaii at gmail.com. Want more Ghost Lore of Hawaii content? Become a patron. For as little as the cost of a cup of coffee per month, members get access to additional bonus and early release episodes, along with free swag and shoutouts. All Kanaka and Obake tier patrons receive an in-episode shoutout, so I want to give a special thanks to the following Kanaka tier patrons. Thank you to Joni Pukahead, who recently upgraded her membership. Thanks for the support, Joni. Shoutout to Andy Mack. Thanks for becoming a member. And last but not least, special mahalo to Afton Stowers for the support. Check out the show note shoutouts for all Pele tier patrons, and I cannot forget the Menehune patrons as well. I am forever grateful for your contribution. Head over to patreon.com slash ghostloreofhawaii for more information or to become a member. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a rating and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Reviews help convince new listeners that all the cool kids are tuning in. Uh, corny. Follow me on Instagram at ghostlore.of.hawaii for updates on the podcast and a peek into my life. I often post memes on my story, related and unrelated, mostly unrelated, that I find funny and serves as a little lighthearted break from all these ghosties that follow me. Joking. Please continue to share the podcast with your friends. They can listen for free at ghostloreofhawaii.com. Although I intend for all historical information to be accurate, I cannot guarantee it will be. Please look into any information on your own. There's so much great info, I cannot always fit into one episode. Some names and locations may be altered for privacy's sake. So, so, ah, so your encouragement, so your encouragement, so your encourage, encouragement. So your encouragement...
sounds so weird. What it would have, what it would have, what is, what is wrong with me? What it would, come on. What it would evolve, what it would have, it would evolve, what it would, what it would have, what it would have evolved to, what it would have evolved to.